Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. In this episode of The Unmistakable Creative, we speak with reality television producer Jerry Colbert about his work on shows like Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, National Geographic Documentaries, and Brain Games. We also talk about why the story you're telling is so essential to any creative project. Jerry, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, my pleasure. So, you know, I came across you by way of our mutual friend, Scott Barry Kaufman. And when you told me a little bit about your story, I thought, yeah, this is one of those hell yes interviews. So on that note, can you tell us uh, a bit about your story, your journey, your background, and how that has brought you to where you're at and what you're up to in the world today? Sure, sure. Well, I can tell you um, where, where I'm at right now is I own a production company called Atomic Entertainment, and we're based in New York City. Um, we have... A couple of projects in active production right now, uh, one that we make with National Geographic uh, Channel, which is called Brain Games, uh, which has, for the past couple of years, been uh, one of their biggest shows, both here in the United States and abroad, and it's a show that uh, uses games and experiments that you play along with uh, that teach you about your brain. Uh, we are the also the production company that is uh, was chosen to make the documentary about uh, Alan Eustace's uh, record-setting space dive that occurred uh, on October 24th where he broke the Red Bull uh, record that was set two years ago for uh, diving from 135,000 feet in, in the stratosphere. Um, and, and that was really about uh, creating a new way of exploring space. So we're in, in, uh, in edit on that right now. Uh, we have a number of other shows, uh, all kind of the information knowledge space that we're working on with other channels. Um, and so that's kind of where I'm at uh, right now, professionally and creatively. Um, how I got here... <laughs> Is, is an interesting story. Um, I, uh, I grew up in South Florida. I was always interested in, um, in theater and, and somewhat in, in television and um, actually uh, studied theater at NYU. And I found my way into television um, because I, I worked on a, a Broadway flop, actually, called The Best Little Horror House Goes Public which was a sequel to The Best Little Horror House, goes to, uh, Best Little Horror House in Texas. And um, it was uh, produced by Universal Studios, and I had gotten hired as the assistant to the producer. This was uh, right out of college. And Universal asked me if I wanted to go work on a TV show um, that they, they had in production at the time in New York because they liked working with me. And I went and I did it and was like, wow, this is, uh, this is cool. Like This is another way of telling stories. And I was working in... Um, in production finance, uh, actually, and um, knew that I wanted to be a producer and, and a writer, and uh, really worked my way up over the last 
15 years, I, I was the production accountant on Sex in the City for HBO in the first season. Um, I was the production accountant and then became the line producer of uh, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy on Bravo uh, back in 2002-2003. And that show is what really launched me into reality TV. And um, the success of that show and my association with it and the work I did on it allowed me to very quickly uh, work on a, on a series of other shows in, in a creative capacity as series producers, a supervising producer, and ultimately executive producer. Um, and so that's the kind of um, short, short-ish version of my career. And I had, a, you know, Shrini, I had like a kind of a revelation about four or five years ago, maybe six years ago, um, I'd started meditating. Uh, which I hadn't been doing before, and I was uh, studying, started to study Buddhism, started to study meditation, and started to have a, a regular daily practice. And I started to look at, you know, is are the are the projects that I'm working on, and is the way I'm spending my time every day uh, really what I want to be doing? And is this what I want to be doing? And if I had to look at my life, you know, the last year or two years of my life, and say, have I spent my time in the way that's most useful? to myself and others. And the answer wasn't like a resounding no, but it was a resounding, you could be doing better stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I had to really like make a bit of a, a career change in a way. I didn't, you know, I stayed in television, but I realized that I didn't want to keep making um, the same kind of reality TV that, that everyone else was making. And, or even the same kind of, or necessarily even make reality TV. And so I ended up uh, pursuing very um, mindfully but aggressively a job at National Geographic Television, uh, which is where I ended up about five years ago. And that's where, among you know, other among other shows, I helped create uh, Brain Games. And so uh, since then, I've been uh, doing this show and other shows. And, and so that's how I got to to where I am now. Mm-hmm. Is that a very is that is that a very long answer for a very short question? No, no, not at all. It's a, it's a perfect <laughs> answer. And you know, you've you've heard my show before, so you know that that just opens up a uh, a can of worms in terms of additional questions. Yes, I'm trying to give you lots of worms that you can then choose from. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's do this. Let, let's talk about the time at NYU. Uh, you know, NYU being sort of this breeding ground for creative professionals and the kinds of people that have come out of there. I mean, you know, we we all know that half of Saturday Night Live's crew came out of or that out of there. I'm really curious about how your time in theater at NYU has sort of shaped and influenced the way you approach your your work today, uh, your worldview, and, and you know your creativity, and, and kind of the kinds of people that really came to your life as a byproduct of that. Sure. Well, I mean, I can tell you that um, my partner in Atomic Entertainment, Adam Davis, uh, is a screenwriter. Uh, he actually had a a very had and continues to have a, a successful career writing screenplays, but also we were partners in production company together and he and I met at NYU um our one of our lead story producers on brain games is someone else that we know from NYU uh we have people shooting shows for us that we know from NYU so there's you know there's a lot of lasting relationships and and very like um career and per, you know and personal defining relationships that came came out of uh, out of that school uh in, in terms of the theater stuff you know NYU is great because uh, not necessarily because of the actual classes, but the fact that they, they had a lot of resources that you were allowed to use. So if you wanted to put on a show in your spare time, there was a theater you could do it. Uh, actors that would want to work with you. 
uh, you know, there was lights that you could use. So um, more than anything, I, I found myself constantly um, producing in my spare time. Uh, you know, I was producing like three or four little plays every year. Uh, and, and also, being in New York, we were able to have these great internship opportunities. So I interned at VH1, uh, and I interned for a woman named Nancy Tenenbaum, who had produced Sex, Lies, and Videotape, uh, which at the time, you know, this was in the, in the early 90s, was, was considered, you know, one of the most successful uh, indie films. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to learn from her about film production and VH1 about television production and from producing my theater stuff from, from theater production. And, you know, the thing that I, I'd say I still apply almost on a daily basis is when you're, when you're doing theater, uh, not unlike your conference, you are you're dealing with something happening live. Mm-hmm. You're usually dealing with, with a very uh, very short window of time, and you usually are dealing with a very fairly, uh, well, let's see the word, restrictive budget. <laughs> so, and, and yet you're trying to give people this incredible experience despite all of these pressures. And so you learn a lot about how to, uh, like what you said before, you know, about you're, you're adjusting on the fly, mm-hmm. you're coming up with creative solutions, you're coming up with ways to make $5 look like $100. And... Stuff that I figured out how to do in those years, I, I, I still use, you know, even now in television production. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're able to make a show that, you know, has a budget that looks, that, we were able to take a budget of, you know, $100,000 and make it look like $200,000 by thinking creatively about how to spend the money. So that, that is something that uh, I think our, our clients and partners really appreciate is that they know that we're going to maximize creatively every every dollar that we get is going to look great on the screen. Yeah, um, and that's that for sure comes from growing up as a theater kid. So a couple of other questions come from that. You know, it's interesting you mentioned the people that you met and and that you still work with them today. And I I was reading a book uh, which talks a bit about the myth of the lone genius and how often a lot of creative brilliance is the byproduct of creative pairs. I guess for me, the question becomes, how do you recognize when those types of people show up in your life? Mm, That's a really good question. Um, (laughs) I think for me, like one of the key things is, uh, if, if, if I'm with someone and we're, and we're coming up with ideas and one upping each other and really making each other laugh a lot, that's a good signal that, for, for me, at least, and this is my personal taste, if someone's making me laugh constantly and I'm making them laugh constantly, that's probably someone we're going to create something with or at least have something creative uh, come out of that. Um, I don't know, man. I don't know if there's like a, you know, it's funny because, you know, you, you can meet somebody and have a great idea with them and start and start beating it out, but then find like sometimes people are great at, you know, the first 10 minutes of an idea, but then they're off to another thing. And they're, they're like one of those people that has a hundred ideas, but doesn't follow them through. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, then there's other people that are great at, uh, execution and organization and following through that, that you're like, Oh, this, this person's helping me get so organized and organize my thoughts. But then you realize, well, we're actually not coming up with that many ideas together. They're more of like, they're more someone who's helping me, uh, organize and stay focused. So finding that sweet spot of somebody who you, love creating with, you love being around, and um, where, you know, one plus one equals five mm-hmm. is, uh, I, I wish I could tell you there's a formula, but it's, you know, I think it's one of those things, you kind of just know it when you see it. 
you know. Um, but like I said, the one thing for me is like, are you having fun? Are you laughing? Are you enjoying the creative process? If you're not having fun and it feels like drudgery to work with somebody, that's probably not the person that you should be working with for the long term on something because this this should be fun. You should, you know, uh, fun. it's not always fun, but generally if it's 80% of the time fun, then that's a good sign. Yeah. Sounds a bit like a marriage. Oh, it's, it's a lot like a marriage. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> well, we were joking, Adam and I were joking the other day. Someone said something like, uh, uh, we were going to lunch and they, they said, oh, we're going to have a drink. You want one? We're like, no, no, we're good. They're like, aren't you guys writers? You know, don't, we're like, oh my God, like the myth of like, you know, the writer sitting there with whiskey and, and writing and, you know, alone in a dark room is so, so, you know, cliche. It's like what the reality is, you know, Adam's at home. He's got his wife and his daughter running around. He's just trying to write. And I'm sitting in the office dealing with 17 questions. You know, there's all these myths around creation that are just kind of romantic, but they're just for us, at least they're just not true. You know, it's really about just sitting down and doing the work. Well, you know, it's funny you say that. I, w- I was writing a, a little article called Behind the Scenes, and I was saying, you know, behind the scenes of all of what you see as the, the final byproduct is a lot of grinding out things and, and monotony that wouldn't be that interesting for for somebody to observe. Yeah, 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 I, I agree. They actually, uh, you know, there was someone wanted to come profile the, potentially profile, like, the process of how we create game, games for brain games. And I'm like, you know, it's... I'm sure there's parts of it that are fun to watch, but an awful lot of it is just like hours and hours and hours of research and tossing ideas around. And 90% of the stuff that you find, you you have to say, uh, yeah, I just spent 10 hours coming up with this idea and it just doesn't work. So I have to just toss it out and start over. And that's, I don't know how much fun that is to watch. Yeah. yeah but the, the end product, you're right. You know, what's on TV, it's great. And, you know, hopefully we make it look easy and effortless. But the truth is it's 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 a lot of work. So on that note, let's talk about this whole idea of working with creative constraints and stretching budgets. I'm really curious how you how you would extract that whole idea of making a hundred dollars look like two hundred or a hundred thousand look like two hundred thousand uh, into some sort of a framework that people could apply when they're creatively constrained. Because the reality is, I think almost anybody listening to this doesn't even have close to the budget that you have to be able to do the things that you do. And I really love to hear your perspective on this. Sure. Well, I can tell you that um, when, you know, when I started creating projects, you know, my budgets were uh, literally in, you know, the hundreds of dollars. And, um, you know, you, what, what, what we do a lot, and, and it's something that you have to be very conscious of doing at first, and it will become instinctual after doing it for thousands of hours, is you have to look at, when, when you start looking at a project, whether it's a, a film or, or, or a, a piece of art or a book or um, a play, whatever it is, or, or even a, uh, an article or, or a blog, the first thing you have to ask yourself is, what, what is the story? You know, what am I trying to say here? And what am I trying to tell somebody? And you have to really get honest about answering that question. And then you, once, you can, once you can answer that question in a sentence or two, then you can figure out, okay, so if, if, they, if someone watching this or listening to this walks away with, with nothing else other than this one thing, what is that one thing, right? And so then once you know what that one thing is, you, you put 80% of your resources towards making that the thing, right? So in other words, if you have $100 and you have 50 ideas and you're going to try and make each of those ideas spectacular and meaningful, you're going you're gonna to fail. You can't do that. You have to pick one and really focus. Mm-hmm. So for us, it's all about 
stripping away the inessential, um, sometimes throwing out things that you love, but actually when you, when you put them under this filter, you realize that's not the thing that I'm trying to say. And really distilling your idea down to that, that very essence of what it is you're trying to say, and then laser focusing all of your resources, your money, your time, your people, your friends, whoever's helping you, all of, all of that gets laser focused onto that one thing. And what we see a lot when we look at uh, TV shows that aren't working or plays that haven't worked or someone submits a writing sample to us that's not great, it's almost always because they're trying to make that, that one thing do 15 or 20 things hmm. instead of just picking one thing and saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going I'm to make this the best version or expression of this one thing. I mean, even your, your podcast is like you've chosen to do one thing and do it really well, right? You're, you've chosen to have creative people come on and tell their stories about how they create. And that's it. You're not also trying to have business people come on and talk about how they built a business or, you know, 17 other things. So I would say that's the, that's the way we do it is we, whether we have $100, $1,000, $100,000, $100, we're always going to laser focus those resources on doing one thing and doing it right. Hmm. I love that. So let's do this. Let's talk about your Broadway flop. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think it's, it's always important to explore sort of, you know, big failures in somebody's career just because those actually become defining moments and they can actually be the catalyst for profound growth and transformation. And I'm really curious how having something fail like that affected you going forward and how you came out of it and took the lessons from it and applied them to the rest of your career in life. Well, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, like almost like any, you know, I think we all, when, when we start a relationship or a job or, or, or a creative project, we all, you know, I mean, part of the, the fun and the magic of starting something is, is this, you know, the fantasy of how this is going to end, right? It's going to be, you know, we're going to be together forever, or this is going to be the show that puts me on the map, or this song is going to go to number one, or, you know, or my story is going to be read by other people who feel the way I do, and it's going to affect them. And, you know, when I, when I started working on this show, uh, the best little horror house uh, goes public. I was sure that this was going to be the beginning of my career as a Broadway producer. You know, I was the assistant to the producer. The, the show was, was, was like kind of a, a, a darling of the people who were running universal at the time it was Sid Sheinberg and Lou Wasserman, who were these, these legendary uh, studio heads. And it was Tommy Toon was the director. Bob Mackey was doing the costumes and it was based on this um, huge hit from the, I guess Festival House was originally, I think, in the 70s or 80s. And so it felt like it was going to be this incredible journey into the rest of my life. And um, where I found myself was uh, eight days after the show opened, um, it closed. And I was told, you know, you have uh, two, or, it was like two or three more days of work and then you're done. And, you know, being young and in New York, I, I had to get another job. And the easiest job I could get was being a bike messenger. And I found myself, uh, like, two months later, you know, delivering packages to the, the, the door next door to the theater where three months before I was sitting in there with, you know, these Broadway legends watching a show that was supposed to go on forever. And it was a really uh, great and rude awakening that not just in uh, – in, in entertainment business, but in, in all of life, you there are there really are no guarantees. You know, you realize like, you, you know, it's it's great to have the dream and the fantasy of how things are gonna gonna work out, and, and you should go in to everything optimistically, 
But um, knowing that you know things end quickly sometimes, things change quickly sometimes is a is a great lesson um, because it it helps you be a little less attached to the outcome and a little more focused on just what needs to be done right now. Uh, and, and you just realize like, look, I could do the best possible job in the world today at work and this show could still get canceled tomorrow for reasons completely beyond my control. And as long as you can, or for me, like as, I feel like as long as I can you know, go to sleep each night saying I did the best I possibly could today, then you know, yes, I'll be sad if, if things end in a way I don't want them to, but I know the the process and the work I did was as good as it could be. Um, and, and so that's the, that's the lesson I took away from that was, you know, nothing works out the way you want it to. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you this. How, after an experience like that, do you separate your identity from the failure? Well, uh... Well, that's a well. That's I didn't really figure that out uh, until <laughs> until about fifteen years later when I started meditating and and, uh, and studying uh, Buddhism. Um, I, I did. I, I mean, I, I wish I could tell you that I was able to do that, but no, I absolutely identified with the failure. I I was like um, so wrapped up in the job. I mean, I was working you know seven days a week, fourteen hours a day, living it, breathing it, and and then it ended, and. Um, you know, it was very hard, uh, and I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that I, I I had any success at the time separating my identity from the failure. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny because I, I get a mix of people who come out of those moments and they're better off for it. But I, it's one of those things that I just realize more and more that you only really understand that in retrospect. While you're yeah. going through it, it's the worst thing in the world because it's happening to you. Yeah, no, I, I, I was absolutely just felt so awful and, you know, and then, and then you do, you know, I was, I was young, I was like 23 and, and so of course you're like, did I screw this up? Did I, you know, you start blaming yourself. Um, yeah, no, it was bad in every way that it could have been bad. I mean, even financially, like, you know, I was sure that this thing was going to run and, you know, I, I, I was just in, not in a financial position to suddenly lose my job. So that was that was very painful, which is why I was a bike messenger in Manhattan uh, <laughs> for, for several months. Um, no, it wasn't until, you know, honestly, man, like years later, like 2007, I started meditating at this group called the Interdependence Project here in, in New York. And um, really, like, great, it, was, it was a great place for me because it, it, was, it wasn't really religious it was you know it was just here's some some great buddhist teaching and meditation practice and it was after doing that for for a while that i was able to really start to separate uh, myself from the work which which actually what you realize when you're able to do that uh and i hadn't realized it until i until i had the experience of doing it is that when you could separate your identity from the work it frees up so much more energy for the work because now you don't have to spend all this energy like falsely identifying yourself with a with a with a project. Mm -hmm. You don't have to spend so much energy defending or protecting. It's just like, okay, I'm just going to do the work there, and then now I have this energy to go do this other thing over here. Then yes, I can be sad and disappointed if something doesn't work out, but I'm going to be sad and disappointed, and then I'm going to process that and and move on. And and so that was uh, not something that I, I not definitely not a skill I had in in, in the nineties when um, Bestel Horror House goes public close. I I absolutely was was a mess. 
over it. So, so let me ask you this: How, when you're having that time as a bike messenger, uh, doing ultimately what you didn't want to be doing, did you maintain a hope and optimism that there was still a future to ultimately end up doing what you've gotten to do? Um. Well, I think you're assuming that I did, <laughs> <laughs> which I probably didn't. You know, I have this tendency, and I don't, and again, like I don't do it anymore. It's part of, you know, part of sort of growing up and and sort of facing some of this stuff. But there was, I, I had a tendency for years to work on something, have a lot of success, and then whether whether it ended quickly or whether it ended because it ended, to kind of then go into this like, oh God, now what, you know, and um. Boy, that was such a waste of time and energy because you're right. I mean, the thing to do in those periods, and it's what I do now, is you just focus on, okay, great, what are we going to do next? Let's let's focus on where do I want to be in six months? Okay, what do I have to do next week to get there? Great, what do I have to do today to get there next week? Okay, what do I have to do this hour to get there tomorrow? You know, it's like you sort of break it down like that. That's a, a process that I've come to. Um but uh, no, at the time, you know, what would happen is eventually a good friend or family member would say, um, hey, what are, you, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, your bike messenger now? It's like, oh, yeah, right. Okay, I need to uh, pick up the phone and make some calls. And, you know, what you find is um, if you have done good work, whether you think it's been recognized or not, uh, someone recognizes it. That is the nature of the universe is that good work, honest good work is recognized. And when you pick up the phone and you need help and you call, start calling around, eventually you're going to find somebody who goes, yeah, you did really good work. And so let me help you out. You need a hand. Let me, let me lend you a hand and help you. Uh, and if you, you know, you, you gotta, you gotta focus on, um, reaching out to people sometimes as uncomfortable as it may be, you know, that's just how, that's how the world works at a subatomic level. It's how it works at a macro level and it's how it works on the level of being human is, we have to connect with other people in order to find your next opportunity. Hmm. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Perfect. Well, on that note, let's let's shift gears and let's start getting into uh, your time working on, on Queer Eye. One of the things that's interesting to me is how you made the shift from production finance to actually being a line producer. Uh, I'm really curious, one, what, what actually goes on as a producer? You know, what are your day to day? What is your day to day life like? And then I really want to get into a discussion about reality TV and how something like Queer Eye just comes together. Uh, sure. And that's that's you know. So let let's just go there. Sure. Well, um, you know, so I I'm, I've always been a writer. I've always been creating projects. Um, the reason I became a, the reason I was into going to production finance to begin with was I knew that I wanted to produce and, and show run eventually. And um, I hadn't had any training. NYU was, was, was great for the creative side, but, you know, really there's very few schools that, including NYU, uh, Tisch School of the Arts, that actually really train you on the, on the business side. And so I thought, well, you know what, I'm going to go do this for a couple of years, um, this production, you know, accounting stuff, and I'll learn, I'll learn how shows are, are budgeted. I'll learn how contracts are done. I'll get to see how all of that works. And so, you know, I'll, I'll do a great job, but I'll also be getting paid to learn how to produce TV shows and movies. And, you know, that was a path I chose. It's not many showrunners don't do that, but it, it, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty left brain, right brain. So I thought it would be useful for me to understand that process. And um, I was working like mad for, you know, four or five years. I, you know, did New York Undercover for Fox. I did Sex in the City for... Uh, for HBO, I did another show for Disney, ABC, and then September 11th happened, and um, the work in New York just came to a screeching halt. I mean, there was like nothing happening. There was no TV shows, maybe one or two. You know, all most of the stuff dried up, and I was working for, uh, gosh, like a year and a half, doing like magazine articles, picking up jobs here and there, 
you know, making ends meet kind of stuff. And, um, and then one of my friends said to me, <laughs> you know, is this what you're doing now? Because why don't you pick up the phone and call, uh, you know, call the folks who found you jobs in the past uh, as a production accountant? Because maybe, maybe jobs are starting to happen again. Maybe new TV shows are coming in. This was in about 2002. And so I did, and I got sent. My first interview was at this company making Queer Eye for, for the straight guy. Um, there was a pilot. They hadn't started production. And they asked me to be the production accountant. And I said, well, here's the thing. I've been a production accountant for four or five years. Um, this is a much smaller show. In fact, I mean, the, the budget on Queer Eye for the whole season was equivalent to like one episode of the stuff that I'd been doing you know, on, on prime time as a production accountant. And I said, I really want to shift into, this is where I really want to make a turn into producing and ultimately uh, executive producing. So I'll, I agreed to come do the production accounting on Queer Eye uh, with the understanding that if it moved to a second season, I would get to move into some sort of producing role. And they were fine with that. And, you know, we made the first season and it was like a enormous hit beyond, you know, what anyone expected. And um, they, you know, agreed to move me into a producing role on the show and I became the line producer. And, um, you know, it was, it was a, <laughs> it was, fa it was fantastic. It was incredibly fun, cha challenging and all consuming. And it was, it was for sure a case of like, uh, you know, be careful what you wish for. Uh, because all of a sudden I was, I was part of this small producing team making, uh, something like, I think we made 40 episodes of the show in like 55 weeks, which is insanely fast. And, um, so I did that and that was how I got, uh, made the move from production accounting into producing. So talk to me about the process of how something like a reality TV show comes together, because I've heard it's not all reality. There's a lot of editing, a lot of scripting, uh, and thousands of hours of shooting that actually go into making one episode. Sure. Well, I can't, I mean, I can tell you that the, the shows, I can't, I can't speak, you know, there's, there's a million different kinds of reality shows. Um, the kind that I've made aren't scripted. Um, you know, I don't know if there are ones that, that are and to what degree, um, but the stuff that I've, I've worked on, um, in reality has been like more along the queer eye model where you have like, that was a, sh a case where you had, you know, a, a great team of, of producers. And then you have these five guys who are kind of lightning in a bottle in terms of casting. You know, they were the, the, the fab five were, uh, hilarious on camera and off camera and they had this great um, balance that they could go in and um, basically do the show. I mean, there was no script. I mean, these guys had to go in five days a week into these situations that they knew very little about and just be incredibly funny and entertaining and make the best of whatever was in this guy's house and then whatever happened when they took him shopping or to, or to create a meal. So that was a case where, you know, that show was never scripted. We did an enormous amount of research beforehand in terms of what would be the best things to do with the straight guy. Um, but in the end, it was all about, uh, for, for, for the production team, it was about creating the space for the, five, the Fab Five to do what they did best and to make sure that the straight guy was as comfortable and just present and you know, just focused on being on the show and, and having this experience as possible. Um, you know, so, so that, that show was 
completely unscripted. I mean, we we scripted nothing, uh, and it was kind of. I always said they had the hardest job I'd ever seen because these, they just had to show up and be funny. It's you know seven o'clock in the morning on a Monday, <laughs> and uh, so. What would you say, as somebody who has produced reality TV, is the art of reality TV? Uh, well, that is a very broad question. Uh, <laughs> like, reality TV to me is such a funny term because, you know, it's, it's, it's like saying scripted TV. Well, scripted TV encompasses everything from dramas to sitcoms to procedural thrillers to crime. You know, it's like... So it's such a catch-all. Um, the art of the shows that I have done um, in reality TV, the ones that I thought were most successful. I mean, Queer Eye, Queer Eye was a show where I was the line producer, so I wasn't the head creative on that show. I was I was deeply involved in, in every aspect of it. Um, but there were creative um, producers on that show, like the showrunner and the the um, executive producers that I I learned a lot from watching. Uh, the shows that I most enjoyed making um, in the reality space, like there was a show I did called Confessions of a Matchmaker for, for A&E that um, was, was really fun. I mean, it was like I never thought I would do a dating show, but this was a dating show set in Buffalo with this truly gifted matchmaker who just had like no censor uh, on what she said. This, this woman, Patty Novak, who was, who was terrific. And, and then her clients, which were real people looking for love in Buffalo in the middle of winter. And um, the thing that made the show great is also why the show probably didn't go to a second season, which is there was nobody in hot tubs. These weren't, you know, amazing looking people. Nobody was a millionaire. This was very, very real. And it was, uh, there had a very big cult sort of uh, loyal following um, for the show because people loved that they were seeing real people really getting advice on how on on, on why they were alone and, and how to fix that and and you know so a lot of times it was about working on something with themselves first that they hadn't realized and I loved working on that show because it was real it wasn't scripted and it was actually helpful um, so that was that was a case where you know the process of that show was having lots of time <laughs> because. When you're asking people to look at themselves, make some changes, um, go on multiple dates, you know, have follow-up meetings, like you can't rush that. You can't say, well, you know what, the TV show only has two days to shoot, so you're going to have to have your personal epiphany by Monday at three o'clock. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, that I know that there are probably shows where that people do that, but we don't, we don't, we didn't do that on that show, and so you know, we. Um, we sometimes followed a story over six or eight weeks. I mean, it bordered it bordered on documentary esque at times. Um, so that was the process of that show, you know, and that was definitely different. Completely, it was a completely different approach than Queer Eye. Where Queer Eye was, you know, it was a five day box. You knew exactly who was doing what on which day, and then you, our job was just to clear the space for the magic to happen. Whereas on Confessions of a Matchmaker, it was a complete unknown. Um, you didn't know how long a person was going to take to go through the process or, or frankly, even if they were going to come out the other, you know, a lot of times the stories didn't necessarily have a happy ending and you had to allow the space for that to happen. Um, so that was a, a completely different process. But, but like I said, like you would call both of those reality TV, but they couldn't be more different. You know, they're, they're, they're completely different kinds of formats and completely different production approaches. Hmm. So 
What are your thoughts on how technology uh, and the internet are enabling the creator and, and how somebody like me can actually go out and start shooting a reality TV show, but it'll probably never be at the production quality that you're at right now. And I think that we're kind of in this really interesting space where you're seeing this in publishing as well, right? Where somebody can self-publish a book and we have all the tools and all the resources to level it up to the same level that a publisher could produce it at. Yet we still don't quite have that same credibility. We're kind of in this murky place right now. And I'm really interested in hearing what your thoughts are in all of this and what you kind of see as a future that's unfolding, especially in the, in the world of television uh, because of things like YouTube. Sure. Well, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a very, that's a complicated question because, um, you know, I, I'm sure that when you know VHS first came out, people must have said the same thing. Like, oh well, now I don't have to have film. I can go with you know, I go with my camera and make something. You know, the the, the thing that makes the internet so interesting is that you have this confluence of uh, the availability of the of the shooting method. I mean, you can shoot a, you can shoot a TV show on your iPhone. The camera is so good at this point. Um, but then you also have the complete democratization of the distribution platform, right? And that's always been the gate. The, 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 the problem hasn't, hasn't always been production. It's always been the gatekeeper of distribution. And so to your point about, you know, production level of, of, a, of, a, of a show that you make or a book that somebody writes, you know, it's, it's not so much production value isn't the issue. It's, it's more what I, I always just go back to storytelling. And, you know, if you go out and, and you make a great five-minute you know, web series where the production value is, is not great, but the acting's good and the storytelling's good and you're telling a story that other people want to hear, there's absolutely no reason why you wouldn't get a lot of people to watch that. Um, but an awful lot of what I see um, is what I call the practice stuff. It's stuff that, you know, maybe if I was in my 20s now, that's exactly what I would be doing is, is, is making these things and putting them online but because I was in my 20s at a time when there was no online, um, I got really good at knowing which ideas to throw in the garbage can. And I think that's an art that's, that's been lost a bit. I think the, the, the ease of production and distribution means that everybody has an idea. Uh, if they have the wherewithal to, you know, the, the time to follow through on it and they put it online or they publish it, sometimes it's, you know, sometimes it's okay not to press publish. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's okay to say, Hey, yeah, I just put a ton of time into this and, and you know, maybe it's, it's, maybe this was just a practice throw, you know, and, uh, you, you kind of have to develop that ability to self-assess whether everything needs to be put out there. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. I, I think pretty much anybody listening knows I write a thousand words a day and out of that thousand words, I aim for one good sentence and that one good sentence ends up being the seed for a lot of other things. But Eric Wall, who we had here before as a graffiti artist, he even talks about this process of creating for the trash can and yep. how important that is. I always, always uh, I used to say that, um, you know, I, I actually find it like incredibly useful to come up with great ideas, like ideas that you know are great and then like throw them in, like throw them in the garbage because... You know, uh, it's like it, if good ideas, if they if it needs to be noticed, it'll let you know, you know, it, it'll be there. It'll come back in some form. Um, and I think that's incredible. You know, if you're when you when you're when you're extracting one sentence out of thousands of words, 
then you're, you're doing the work of self-curating and making sure that what you're publishing is actually great and not just what you happen to write that day. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, let's do this. Let's shift gears and let's start talking about the work that you guys are doing today and kind of how all the dots have connected to one, make you choose what you've chosen to do uh, and really how it's led to the stories that you guys have decided to focus on and uh, decided to tell today. Sure. I mean, I guess the, the single biggest thing for me is just saying, you know, it takes as much energy and time and money to make a, a TV show that's simply entertaining as it does to make one that's both entertaining and actually helpful to people. And um, it's what we, what we realized a few years ago was, you know, there's a lot of people who are, who are really good at making, you know, the, the reality shows centered around crazy families or, you know, rich people in Manhattan and all that kind of stuff. So there's, a, there's a place for all that. There's an audience for it. And a lot of my colleagues are, are incredible at making it. Um, what, what we've developed the ability to be really good at is, is doing something a little bit different, which is still being incredibly entertaining, but coming up with ways to kind of secretly allow someone to learn. It's not like we're tricking someone. I mean, they, they know when we're watching our shows that they're having the experience of, of feeling a little bit smarter or learning something about themselves, but they're having a good time doing it. Um, and so that's really the focus for, for Atomic is projects that are, you know, information driven, knowledge driven, but that are still incredibly fun, funny, you know, the kind of stuff you would still tell a friend to watch, or maybe you'd watch, even watch with your kids if it's, if it's that kind of show. So that's really where our focus is, has shifted to. So that's, that's really interesting. And I, I think you, you've made a, a great point about things being able to be a combination of entertaining and helpful. I think that's really the sweet spot. And it's kind of, I think, why people watch Oprah. It's why people listen to certain shows on the Internet, why certain podcasts have sort of the ability they do to cut through the noise. I think that's a, that's a really killer combo. And I guess what that takes me to is how we start to develop and cultivate that in our own work. Sure. Well, I can tell you, you know, I I used to read so much. Am I allowed to curse on your show, by the yeah, way? Yeah, absolutely. I, I always I always forget who I am, and I I used to read so much new age horseshit, and I loved it, you know. And I, I like I learned a lot from stuff like you know all those like self improvement things. Like there was a period in my life a long time ago where I, I, a lot of that was there was people around me always handing me these books to read, and I realized at some point after I started meditating. Um, another shameless plug for meditation, um, is that self-improvement is like, the whole concept of self-improvement is, is kind of useless. It's like, it's not about, you can't improve yourself. You can only have the self that you have right now. And what what is useful is something that I think you, you actually talk a lot about on your shows. Um, maybe you don't name it this way, but I would call it more like self-revelation, right? And really stripping away all the stuff that everyone else is telling you you should be doing and what culture says you should be doing and all the stuff the TV is telling you and the media is telling you and just figuring out, like, revealing your true self. Like, what is my actual self (laughs) and what does it want? And that's really the work that's worth doing to us. You know, it's it's, it's not painting over, like, a rust spot like, you know, some self-improvement stuff could be. But it's it's more about... um, giving yourself and giving people the tools to explore who they really are. And that is a, it's not something I would ever say in a, obviously like in a, in a television pitch meeting, 
Um, it's something that's so sort of fundamental to how we think about about what we're creating for for TV um, that it's just kind of baked into our thought process. But it's like how how do our shows help people um, just get more back more in touch with who they are and the fun of being human and the joy of being human and and not not in a distraction way, but in a way that's like really empowering. Um, and it's it's very hard to do, to do that. I don't mean to make it sound it's not. There's nothing easy about um, about this, but it is a great filter for us in our work. Um, how how other people you know apply that to their work? I think you kind of have to figure it out on your own. It's a process, but that's that's where we've landed with it. Is like how do we empower people uh, to to be to to help them realize who they truly are? Uh, Brain Games is a great example of that. Where the show is a lot of fun to watch. It's it's great fun. You're playing games, um, but along the way, what you're actually doing is you're. It's not that you're getting smarter. You're actually getting better at understanding how your brain uh, makes you human and how you are who you are. I, I think when you say that it's one of those things that there's not necessarily an answer to that it's different for everybody. That's so true, uh, and I'm I'm working on a second book right now called The Compass. And the idea behind it is that we can't really do this with a map. Uh, mm -mm. Specifically, what you're talking about probably is the core of what can never be done with a map or a set of uh, instructions because there are none. It's really different for each and yep. every person. Oh, dude. Yeah, I completely agree. That's why people ask me, like, well, how do you, you know, what do I do and how do I do it? It's like, I, my path to how I got here is so twisted and interesting. Now, there's certain things that, that are archetypal about, my my path, and when I look at other people's paths, that you sort of recognize those those things as well. But the granular details are so it's it's trial and error. Like you have to really commit to figuring out, you know, how do I do it? Because you can't you can't you can't give a prescription to someone else. You can't say, well, here's what worked for me, so you go do this. Um, I can say, here's what worked for me. Maybe you'll see something in it that helps you. I mean, we, you know, I, I can tell you one thing that I tell everybody is try to keep as much empty space on your calendar as possible. Don't fill your calendar with like endless meetings and phone calls and stuff. Like try and find, even if it's, there's an, you know, 30 minutes or, or, or 45 minutes in a day where you can be really alone and just kind of whatever you're doing in that time, having some time where you don't have the TV on, there's no radio, there's not even necessarily music, you're working on something and just like, like be alone with your thoughts, you know, have, have the ability to have some quiet space. Um, that's one thing that I, I found personally very useful, um, you know, throughout, throughout the last 15 years of, of working in the business. Um, there's a couple of other specific things, but yeah, like you're saying, it's, it's more of a compass than a map because the map is, you know, it's someone else's map. Yeah, definitely. I, I always say if you follow in the footsteps of your role models, heroes, and predecessors, at best you'll become a pale imitation. <laughs> that's a great. That's a great way to put it. I mean, have you? Do you have anything like any kind of practices or like uh, things that you do on a regular basis that you, when someone says, "Well, how do I, you know, sort of follow the same path and you know really become tr true to living what I what I really am?" Is there anything that you tell people? Uh, that's, that's a, a, always a, a hokey question to me because it's, it's as loaded as the one I asked you. <laughs> I, 
I think that a lot of it is a process of self-exploration, but more than anything, I always say indulge your curiosity because mm-hmm. that's where most of it lies. Mm-hmm. And, and that's been the driving force for me behind doing this show is I'm really curious. I always have been about what makes somebody like you tick, what makes somebody like the people who end up on the show do what they do and end up where they end up at. You know, maybe I'll take some lessons for it, but from it, but it doesn't mean I'm there to copy it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always find your you know interviews that you do and 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 you know similar shows like it's not so much that I necessarily am walking away going oh here is a checklist of things I should do. It's more like oh thank God someone else has struggled just as much as me yeah. and I'm not alone in this. And it's like I've always that's probably why I got into the self improvement stuff at some point. It's why you know I got into reading like the hero's journey and those kind of things for for a while. Was it was like just saying like okay, I'm in I am frequently in a dark place because I'm stuck or I don't know how to f- make the next move. And it's so good to hear that other people and, and and people who have succeeded in their own fields have gone through the same struggles and continue to. I mean that's the other thing I tell people like if you think there's some magic moment where the elevator doors open and you're, you know, in this eternal cocktail party of awesome creativity where everything you say gets published and every, you know, idea you have gets put on TV, wake up. <laughs> it is never going to happen. You know, you will always have the some version of the creative struggle because that's what being human is. It's about, you know, desiring and then learning how to to deal with that desire in a in a in a wholesome and wise way rather than a destructive way. Well, I think that makes a, a perfect way to to wrap up our conversation. That was such a beautiful way of putting it all. So I'm going to close with my final question, which you've heard me ask since you listen to the show. What is it that you think makes somebody or something unmistakable? You know, I knew that was going to be the final question. And I, I don't I, I thought to myself yesterday, I was like, I should have a really good answer prepared. But I don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, what makes something unmistakable? Been a lot of, there's been a lot of interesting answers to this question on your show. Um, I would say my answer is, is going to seem like a non-answer. Uh, I would say one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately is I see a lot of things, whether it's products or TV shows or whatever the case may be, that, that just look like they were designed by committee, that just reek of lack of vision and, and a lack of specialness. And I think we all know it when we see something that is truly a vision that was guided by, by one person or a few people who rallied other people around them or, or even just did it on their own. That sense of, of something being a, a unique expression of time and space is what makes it unmistakable. And, um, you know, sometimes... You know, it's like sometimes the most compassionate thing you can do for for someone is to tell them that you don't you don't necessarily want their input because it's not going to help make make this thing better. Uh, and so I think for me, the thing that, that makes something unmistakable is just really recognizing the spark of creation and 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 uniqueness in it. Um, that's such a non-answer. I'm I'm sorry, but uh, you know, you know what I was thinking of. I, I I do you remember the Motorola? Do I have a second to test? Do you have a question? Yes, or are absolutely. We, are, we, are we out of time? No, absolutely. Do you remember the Motorola? Do you remember the um, Motorola Rocker phone? Vaguely, is it after the razor? 
It was, I believe it was after the Razer, and it was actually the very first uh, iPhone, in a sense. Um, it was a, a collaboration between Motorola and Apple that everyone has forgotten about. But this phone was a Motorola phone that ran iTunes. And I've been bringing it up lately as an example of what happens when great minds get together and design things by committee. It was one of the most hideous and unusable things you've ever seen. I mean, it's worth looking up. The Motorola, it was like ROKR, I think. Mm -hmm. And it was so clunky and awful. And it's like, that is a great example of something that is is very uh, <laughs> the opposite of un unmistakable in the wrong way. <laughs> You know, and then you look at a product like the iPhone, which came out a few years later, and it's like you're looking at, you know, one or the, really the vision of one person aided by a couple of other people who, you know, who really rallied around that vision. And to me, that's the difference between design by committee and something that's just unmistakable and awesome. Um, yeah, so that's that's it. Well, that's a perfect way to wrap up our conversation. That's uh, the second perfect way to wrap yeah, up that I've given you. It really I'll, is. I'll actually stop talking now. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jerry, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share some of your insights with our listeners here at Unmistakable Creative. This has been a really, really fascinating conversation. Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed great. it and I've learned a lot. So thank you so cool, much. Man. Thanks for having me on. It was really a pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure. And for those of you listening, we'll wrap the show with that. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, welcome to the Next Wave Podcast. Consider us your chief AI officer in your business. My name is Matt Wolf. I have the number one YouTube channel in the AI space. I also run futuretools.com and I'm joined by my co-host, Nathan Lands, founder of lore.com. We wanna bring you the latest AI news and trends, show you how you can use AI in your business and personal life and help make it super easy for you to understand and execute. We're gonna equip you with the knowledge to thrive in this upcoming wave of change. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. 
This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.